You're listening to the voice of Dog. This is Rob McWolf, your fellow traveler, and today's story is the first of two parts of Silence and Sword by Royce Day, which was originally published in the shared world anthology The Reclamation Project, Year One, edited by John Roby, and available through Fur Planet. When he's not defeating the plots of insane artificial intelligences, Royce is complicating the romantic lives of the Darktail family in his long-running Red Vixen Adventures series, available through Amazon.com, and has had short stories published by Armored Fox Press and Thurston Howell Publications. Please enjoy Silence and Sword, Part 1, by Royce Day. The string of bells mounted above my shop door jingled as I heard it open. I didn't look up from the counter immediately as I was in the middle of soldering a new processing circuit into the pocket comp I'd picked up for scrap the market the day before. So much crap being dug up every day from the bowels of Ambara down, it was easy, sometimes, to miss tech that just needed a little TLC to get it working again. It wouldn't sell for new like some of the gear the Reclamation Project stiffs brought down from High Imperos or elsewhere for trade, but folks around my neighborhood couldn't afford that stuff anyway. One sec, I muttered, completing the circuit. I sat in the workbox that kept bolted to the counter. When Umbara hit the ground, 45 years ago, it left the building my shop occupied, bent at a perpetual five-degree angle, which meant everything, not nailed down, tended to slide when I wasn't looking. Once I was sure the cop's going to stay put, I looked up and started to say, may I help you? Then I looked up a bit more, then a lot more. You get a lot of oddball-looking furs in Ambara Down. Folks with pelts and colors and patterns you don't normally see in furry territories. Folks with cybernetic bits bolted on. Folks with maybe too many limbs or occasionally eyes. These two were weird, even by those standards. The first was the guy who was making me at a crick in my neck. He was like no other furry I'd ever seen. More like a anthropomorphic dragon with skin composed of thousands of tiny blue scales, with a head of bright red hair drawn into a ropey braid all the way down his back to a thick, two-meter-long tail, bushy tufts in his large mobile ears. He hunched over on great clawed feet as he stood in the middle of my shop, and I guessed if he stood all the way up, he'd top out at about two and a half meters. His armor looked like it had been cobbled together from composite slabs cut from something else, maybe a warbot or vehicle riveted together to fit his huge frame. Over the armor, he wore a stained and patched white cloak, and I saw the handle of what looked like an honest-to-goodness sword about as long as I was tall, and a scabbard hung across his back. Next to him stood a much smaller fox. She was a vixen with bright golden eyes and a slightly oddball tuxedo pelt, and white neck fur disappearing into the collar of the high-necked red blouse she wore, over which was buttoned a black vest. She wore a black skirt over black leggings, and like her companion, didn't bother with shoes. She did have a equipment belt around her waist, which included a holstered needle pistol and a large utility knife. If Blue Dragon was ridiculously tall, she was short. Top of her head level with my chin, and I'm shorter than average for a leopard at just a meter and a half. Are you Mr. Wildman, the proprietor of this establishment? The big blue whatever he was asked, his voice so deep and rumbling it shook my own chest a bit. His accent wasn't local, that was for sure, nor from anywhere else I was familiar with. 
I'm Joe, I replied. Nobody around here calls me mister. Who the hell are you? What the hell are you? I am Hamia. Ignite of clan sunstone of the belly of soft grass, he said as if that were a perfectly normal sentence. I am a wasagan. Okay, I had heard of wasagans. They're a bunch of lizards, or so I've been told, living in the deserts past the mountain in the distant north. I wasn't sure if they were a naturally occurring race or some old human experiment that had been dumped over the side of a floating city when the scientists were done with them. Nobody had ever bothered to mention they were blue giants, nor that they talked like somebody out of a historical vid. What's an egg knight? I asked. He smiled, and I was happy he didn't show off any teeth when he did because I suspected they were a lot sharper and longer than mine. An ignite is a protector of all that is smaller than themselves. Buddy, everyone in this town is smaller than you, I told him. Hamia shrugged in agreement, which seemed to involve a lot of creaking leather and armor plates grinding together. I am kept well occupied, he replied serenely. And who is your friend here? I asked, waving to the vixen. She'd been keeping quiet during my conversation with the big guy, making me wonder if she was a junior partner in whatever business they had going. At my collar, she looked up at her colleague and touched the collar of her blouse. This is Ali, Amia said. She is the reason we have come to your establishment. Okay, why didn't you say so? I turned to Ali. What do you need fixed, ma'am? Instead of answering, Allie started unbuttoning the top of her blouse. As it opened up, I saw a seamless ring of gleaming silver around her neck, maybe three centimeters wide and one thick, with a dimly glowing red light centered over her throat. A collar. Get out of my shop, I growled. Allow me a moment to exp- The Wazagon began. I don't give a flying fuck what kind of bullshit explanation you're about to give me. I spat, my tail lashing as my ears turned back. I reached under the counter and brought up the stun baton. I kept there for emergencies, waving at him. I don't deal with slavers. Get out of my shop before I call the prefect's guard on you, and don't you bring your big blue tail back around here. I am no slaver, the wasagon roared, one hand reaching back to grab the hilt of his sword. This time I did get a look at his fangs, a whole mouthful that were a lot bigger than mine. You will not sully my honor, so I will have satisfact. A piercing whistle split the air, interrupting both our rants. Allie withdrew her fingers from her lips, glaring up at Hamia. She began gesturing at him rapidly, pausing fingers moving in patterns I didn't get, but the Wazgan apparently did. I'm sorry, Hamia said to her, ears flicking back, letting go of his sword hilt. No, I did not mean to, but he interrupted me, and I didn't get a chance to... As she continued to glare and wave her fingers at him, he ran one meaty paw through his scalp and said in frustration, It's just that they all make the same assumption every time. Wait, hold up, I said, setting the stun baton down on the counter, then grappling it again when it started to roll away. She's not your slave? Ali is no one's slave, Hamia said, the vixen nodding firmly in agreement. All right, I said, then what's that thing around her neck? Hamia frowned at me, 
and said, Ali is neither deaf nor a potted plant. Address your questions to her. Okay, at a point there, I turned to face her. Sorry, ma'am, what's that saying around your neck? Allie gestured again, her eyes focused on mine, and Hamia translated for her. It's a slave collar. I closed my eyes and pinched my muzzle, briefly feeling a headache coming on. But you just said... I was a slave, but not anymore. Allie gestured to me as relayed by Hamia. Then she sighed, stepping closer to the counter and lowering her head so I could see the back of her collar. Inscribed there was a GNDN code, along with the trilobe knot symbol of Pax Machina. Close up, I could see how tight the awful thing was around her neck, visibly compressing her throat and probably making swallowing difficult. A Pax unit put that on you? I asked. She nodded and went on. I was in a place, a machine place, of metal walls and metal sky, deep underground, I think. There were other furries there, all young, all different species, taken away from their families by the thinking machines, kidnapped. None of us could remember what was before the machine place. We were taught to do tasks, build small machines. No one knew why, only that we had to stay absolutely silent while we worked. I frowned. You're not naturally mute? She shook her head once, and then sighed, gesturing for Hamia to continue. Ali was six years old, I think, when I found her. Naked and starving, Hamia said, taking up the thread. She'd found a way to escape that awful place. I gave her food and water, and then I asked what her name was. When she told me that evil caller shocked her so hard, she was insensible for nearly half a day. She hasn't said a word aloud to me since. Why the hell haven't you cut it off her then? Looks like it's half choking her. Hamia ran his claws through his hair again. Would that the task were so simple, especially given how tight it has become as she's grown older. The metal is as hard as my armor. Any force or heat great enough to break it would likely fatally injure Ali as well, and I fear if we were to try, it might send another shock through her body, one that would be fatal. Or maybe just make her giggle until she threw up, I thought. With the Pax Machina, you just never knew. I couldn't blame them for their caution, though. You came into my shop expecting me to help, somehow? Yes, two months ago we found this, while examining a ruin that showed signs of Pax Machina excavation. Amir reached into the pouch at his belt, drawn out another silver circle, the same as Ali's, but somehow broken into two pieces. It was in a pile of bones that we determined was once a young badger. Somehow, somehow it had opened. Perhaps it just ran out of power, or perhaps it shut down when its victim expired, but there must be a means of disabling the mechanism. I held one piece up, squinting at the open joint. It's as flat and featureless as the rest of the thing. Magnetic, maybe? I guessed. Might explain how the joint is so strong, can't see the seams. Then again, with Pax Machina Tech, you never quite know how it works. You have a reputation in Ambaradown for knowing how to get old or 
incomprehensible tech working, Hamia said. Do you think you could figure this out? Find a means to release Ali's collar. I'm a tinkerer, I told him. I can get old GNDN tech working sometimes, sure, but Pax Machina is another thing altogether. I can pay you a fair price if you are willing to try, Joe, Hamia said, reaching into another belt pouch. I waved him down. Keep your money for now, I told him. Look, give me a day to examine this thing, and I'll meet you at the damsel flight tomorrow evening to give you the results. If I can figure it out, you can pay me. I tapped the collar once. If I can't, I'll hold on to this as the price for wasting my time. Fair deal? The Wazgan and the Fox looked at each other for a moment, somehow reaching a silent decision. Allie turned back to me and nodded, and Hamia said, A fair deal. See you in a couple days, then, I told them. The two mismatched companions left my shop, Hamia somehow not beating his head on the low door sill. I frowned to myself, stepped around the counter to turn the sign on the door to close, and pulled out my tools. The damselfly always had good music, even if sometimes was a little odd. The trio of tigers were on the stage when I walked in, thumping a danceable beat on improvised instruments made of plastic pipes, a tub drum, and a guitar constructed from scrap tin. I grabbed a beer and a plate of chips from the bar and found a table for myself. The collar and a couple of other items, when a carry-all slung over my shoulder. About a half hour later, Hamia and Ali arrived, the former getting a few stares from the claimer humans scattered around the place as he ducked under the doorway. The furries and local humans did a better job at pretending not to be surprised. Everybody comes to the damselfly eventually. Ali grabbed a chair with a high seat so her head was level with mine. Amia solved his similar problem by just sitting on the floor, wrapping his long tail around his waist. The vixen, the neck of her shirt buttoned up tight to hide her collar again, ordered a half pint for herself with Hamia translating, while he got a pitcher of water, earning a dirty look from the bartender. I don't indulge in spirits, he said simply. I tried to imagine a drunk giant with a sword in his hands stumbling around the bar's dance floor and decided the bartender shouldn't complain too much. Okay, here's what I was able to figure out, I told them pulling out the two pieces of the inactive collar and setting them on the table. I couldn't pop the case open to figure out what's going on with it. No surprise there, given Pax tech. Allie gestured something, but then closed her eyes and drew her fingers into fists. Hamia reached across the table to grip her shoulder in one massive hand, looking concerned. It was not worthless, he said. I waved to get their attention. Hey, hey, I just said I couldn't crack it open. That doesn't mean I didn't find out anything, I told her. Allie looked up to me, her golden eyes intent. Some GNDN tech can be recharged via ambient static on their surfaces, so I thought giving it some power was worth a shot. When I did, I found this. I pulled my signal detector unit from my bag, used in my younger salvage days to search for a stray tech that might be alive and transmitting power in the lower warrants. When I brought the detector close to the color pieces, it started beeping for attention, its display lighting up. What does this mean? Hamia asked. Best guess? It's calling back to a control unit, I told them. 
probably whatever facility Allie was in had some kind of central coordination system to control all the collars. Theoretically, you could use a collar to pinpoint where the AI exactly was in the facility. Allie's eyes narrowed in thought, and she turned to Hammy and started gesturing rapidly. The big blue lizard frowned and then shook his head. Too dangerous. Far too dangerous, he told her. What? I asked. She wishes the impossible, Hermia said. I felt my tail lash. Wishes what? Allie turned to me to gesture, then glanced at Hamia, waving a hand at him, then over to me. I will not speak your foolishness to him, Hamia argued at her, his ears folding back. The risk to you would be too great. Allie waved back and forth more urgently between us, tears starting to soak her face fur. And the Wazagon's only response was to fold his arms over his armored chest, looking displeased. Hey, I said, let the lady talk. Or are you deciding what's good for her or not? I am just watching out for her, Hamia started. Then he was silent for a moment before putting his face in his hands and sighing deeply. I'm sorry, Ali. I... Sometimes I forget you are no longer six. He turned back to me and said, She wishes to use the color signal to find the facility where she was held. You don't know where it is? I asked her. Only vaguely, she told me, Hamia translating once more. She regained her composure. I escaped into the forest and ran as far as I could, but pretty soon I got lost and ended up going in circles. By the time Hamia found me, I was passed out from exhaustion. Hamia pulled out a large plastic map from his pack, printed somewhere long ago, stained and annotated over the years with a flowing script. I didn't recognize his native language, maybe. He pointed to a specific notation about 200 clicks north of Ambara Down. That is where I found Ali, as I traveled from my home to the furry lands. You never tried to go back there before now? I asked. He shrugged. My people have learned to keep well clear of Pax Machina activity, and I was more concerned with Ali's well-being. My quest to find a technology that could remove that accursed collar from her neck seemed fruitless until now. There was nothing to be gained, just stumbling around with vague hopes through the trees. Took a thoughtful sip of my beer. Say you find this place where she was held. What do you think you can do there to take it off her? I have been told that sometimes Pax Machina can be bargained with. Yeah, I heard that too from a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. I replied, taking a longer sip. And if that doesn't work? He reached up and tapped the hilt of that enormous sword of his with one claw. Start breaking things until I break the thing that controls Ali's color. I'm rather good at that. Not exactly subtle, I noted. Amia shrugged. I'm not a subtle sort of person. I can believe that. I finished off my beer and set my glass down. You might have better luck if you went in there with someone who knows electronics. Allie glanced at me and gestured. 
You're a shopkeeper, not a mercenary like us. Maybe not, I told her, but I got most of the stuff in my shop from scrounging in the deep warrens. I'm not going to say I'm an expert on Pax Machina tech. No one is. But I might find something you might have overlooked that would help you. Hamia looked over to Allie, exchanging gestures with her, their faces intent. You have a deal, Hamia said once they had finished. What is your required payment? Transportation, and food to there and back, and whatever GND and gear I can salvage out of the place that you can carry for me, I told him. Hamia let out a roaring laugh and offered his hand for me to shake. A deal, my friend. For Ali's sake, I can carry much. It only took a day to get my gear together and arrange for a friend I knew in the guard to watch over my shop while I was away. They'd also take care of disposing of the contents if I didn't come back after my rent was due. I didn't figure on losing my life out there, but I was also going to deliberately look for a packed mock in a facility and poke at it which is no one's definition of a smart idea. I met Hamia and Ali at the western sky dock on the edge of Old Ambara. Back when the city was flying, it was one of four huge bays where air skiffs would dock to load or unload passengers or goods. Nowadays, the docks served as city gates, controlling foot traffic in and out, a constant flow of furries and the occasional non-claimer human that I had to dodge around as I looked for my ride. The pair were waiting for me beside a beat-up hover skip, the composite metal top long since torn off and replaced by a set of aluminum poles and a nylon awning. There were two seats for average-side furries and a large uncovered cargo bed in the rear. Where are you going to sit? I asked the Wazagon. In the back, he replied, waving his tail at the cargo bed. Ali will pilot the craft. It works for me. I tossed my backpack and toolkit in the cargo bed and settled into the passenger seat. When Hamia climbed in, the skiff's grav unit whined in protest as it bobbled a bit back and forth until Ali started the hydrogen generator and everything settled down. As soon as I was strapped in, Ali eased us out of the bay and onto the dirt road, heading outwards toward furry territory. The day was warm. But there was a nice breeze as the skiff skimmed along the ground at a leisurely 30 kph. We circled around the cobbled-together buildings that surrounded the great vine-covered bulk of Ambara Down, and we turned north towards the jungle. The city was ever-expanding outward, as the folks who couldn't afford to live within its walls built up around it using scrap or whatever else they could find digging through the debris dropped during the city's great impact. Mind if I play some music? I asked Allie as she weaved around slower skiffs and ground carts. She nodded and I plugged my palm comp into the skiff's comm unit. Soon I had a nice classic beat pumping through the speakers as I tapped my finger pads on the door frame. I glanced over at Allie as we pulled out onto the northern trade route, a generous gift to the fairly populous by the reclamation project, and there were plenty of signs beside it to remind us to see she was mouthing along silently with the words. I couldn't hold a note to save my life, but I couldn't imagine not even daring to sing for fear of getting killed by a collar like hers. 
I really hoped when we found this place we could get the damn thing off her. The sun was just setting by the time Allie pulled the skiff off the road into a nearby clearing, dropping it on its skids with a light touch. I rolled out of my seat, taking a good stretch while Hamia uncurled his legs out from underneath himself, and did his best not to tip over the skiff as he got out. Whose turn is it to make dinner? He asked Allie. She pointed to him and then made some gestures, her ears up and smiling. Big Lizard placed a hand over his heart, frowning in mock offense. I am not lazy. I merely don't fit in the driver's seat. I am deeply wounded by your accusation. Last, the next gesture she gave him was easy to translate, even without knowing the rest of the language. Amia laughed and grabbed a large bag from the skiff's cargo bed, pulling out cooking pots and sealed canisters of preserved food, while Allie gathered dead wood from under a nearby copse of trees and started building a campfire. Hey, uh, what can I do to help? I asked as the pair moved about in an obviously practice routine. Do you have a tent or something I can put up? Allie mimed washing the dishes after the meal, and I nodded. She then gestured, and Hamia translated, We don't bother with the tent if the weather is nice. Okay. I watched Samia poured water from a large plastic jug into a pot and started cooking up a bean and jerky stew. Allie glanced over to watch for a moment, then moved off, pacing the perimeter of our campsite. Ears up and one paw on the holster of a pistol, probably making sure there wasn't any hostile wildlife to bother us. While the Wazagan stirred the pot, I ventured to ask, So, what do you guys do when you're not hunting down Pax Machina facilities? Mussinetti work, Hamia replied, his armor clanking as he shrugged. Caravan escort, bodyguarding, breaking the heads of people who prey upon the weak. You've been doing that with her since she was six? I asked. Hamia snorted briefly. No. I first attempted to find her place of birth and return Ali to her parents if they were alive. After two years of searching for any kin, I gave up and attempted to at least place her with a family of foxes. My tail lashed in surprise. No one wanted her? Oh, no, the family I found was more than willing to take her in, even with Ali's uh, difficulty. But two days after I left, I found she'd run away and followed my trail. I walked her back, left again and she followed me once more. Finally, I faced the choice of allowing her to remain with me or hog-tying her until I was out of her reach. He shook his head, his braid swinging back and forth behind him. I couldn't do that to her, so I brought her along as I traveled and raised her as best I could. Where did she pick up that gesture language you two use? I mean, it's a brilliant way to get around that damn collar. Hamia grunted. My clan is isolated and small. We do not get many travelers to offer their seed to the egg pools. As a result, there are many whose eardrums did not develop properly. Creator, be gentle with them. Everyone knows a bit of it to communicate with those who cannot hear. It was easy enough to teach her. Our ears pricked up as we heard Allie whistle sharply, two quick tweets. Hamia leapt to his feet, drawing that huge sword of his out as he shouted, I'm coming. He waved at the skiff. Get in, Joe. If it sounds like we're being overwhelmed, 
try to get away as quickly as you can. Hey, I'm no coward, I protested. You're also not armed, he called back over his shoulder as he ran toward the cop's trees and disappeared into the darkness. I strained to see what was happening, but even a leopard's night vision only goes so far. Honestly, the big guy was right, though. I didn't have a weapon beyond my fangs, my claws, and a pocket tool hanging from my belt. Better to leave it to the professionals rather than get in the way. That decision lasted for all of a minute, as the continued lack of sound except for the cricket singing started to get to me. If there was danger, shouldn't I have heard fighting? I headed toward the trees, finally spotting Hami and Ali looking at something by the base for a particularly large oak. What's up? I asked. What's down is more like it, Hamia said. He pointed to the base of a particular tree. I squinted and saw what had made Ali sound the alarm. From a mouse-sized hole at the base of the oak, a line of small machines marched out looking like black, flat-topped cockroaches. Top each of them was a cube of wood about a centimeter square cut so fine the sides looked polished. I watched as over two dozen of them emerged, mechanical termites on a mission to do... something. Are they... hollowing out the tree? I asked. Allie nodded, her face grim. Why? I asked. It's Pax Machina, Hamia replied. Why is usually an irrelevant question. Should we follow them? He shook his great head. Only if you want to meet what needs all these little wooden cubes. I certainly do not. The oak tree began to sway, creaking loudly, and toppled over away from us with a crash, branches snapping off in every direction. We all took a step back, Hamia grabbing the edge of his cloaked shield alley and me as splinters flew through the air. From the hollowed trunk, a silver cylinder about half a meter long and ten centimeters wide emerged, walking on four spindly metal legs. A pair of antennae with camera lenses on the end poked out from the top of the cylinder, rotating to focus on Alley. The cylinder tilted upwards as if it was looking into our faces and announced in a chirpy, cheerful tone. As it went on burbling happily, Allie unholstered her needle pistol. Her lips peeled back from her fangs in a silent snarl, and she shot the cylinder three times, the tiny needles cracking through the air as they hit the bot. The damn thing just kept going despite having three metal spikes in its body. Service units who complete their tasks are well fed. Service units who do not complete tasks may be volunteered for reception. swept his huge sword in a low arc, catching the cylinder with its tip. The robot flew up into the air and disappeared into the darkness. I heard it crash to earth a couple of seconds later, distantly protesting. The fuck? I asked. 
as Allie shoved her pistol back into its holster and started marching back to our camp, shoulders and tail stiff with anger. That happens every time we encounter a Pax Machina unit, Hamia explained as we turned to follow. It almost always upsets her, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I can guess, I said. Is it safe to stay here? Probably. Construction units like that are rarely aggressive. We stopped in front of Allie, who had sat down in a miserable ball in front of the fire, facing away from us, arms wrapped around her legs, her face buried between her knees. I reached out to touch her shoulder, but at the last minute thought better of it. Being touched by a near stranger probably wasn't what she wanted right now. Instead, I said, my night vision is pretty good. I could run us a few more miles up the road if you wanted. She looked up at me, golden eyes wet with tears, and gave a sharp nod. I ended up driving half the night. It still didn't feel like we'd gotten far enough away. This was the first of two parts of Silence and Sword by Royce Day. Read for you by Rob McWolf, Werewolf Hitchhiker. You can find more stories on the web at thevoice.dog or find the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Voice of Dog.